Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash VKY. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Hi there, I'm Dr. Richard Finn, professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. We'll start by answering key questions about the latest updated guidelines for managing unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma, particularly as these updates may affect your current practice. In the second presentation, we'll explore how guidelines and evidence may be applied to the management of patients with unresectable HCC. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Finn. As you said, this part of our discussion will focus on the latest updated guidelines for managing unresectable HCC. I'd like to start by asking you, what is the difference between unresectable and advanced HCC? These two groups are not necessarily interchangeable. Keep in mind that patients with advanced liver cancer really have two diseases. They have typically underlying liver disease as well as a malignancy. So patients can be unresectable from tumor burden or because their liver disease is decompensated, i.e. a patient with portal hypertension or a patient with decompensated cirrhosis might not be a surgical candidate, not because of their tumor burden, but because of their underlying liver disease. Now, when approaching how to treat patients, typically the Barcelona staging system is used, BCLC. And this system actually looks at not only tumor burden, but also the extent of underlying liver disease. The bulk of patients we see will be either Barcelona B intermediate or Barcelona C advanced. When we're talking about advanced liver cancer, we're really referring to a group of patients who have one, extra hepatic spread, or tumor confined to the liver, but invading into the vasculature of the liver. For these patients with advanced liver cancer, the standard of care has been systemic treatment. Now, some of the patients with intermediate liver cancer or Barcelona B may be candidates for systemic treatment as well. So patients with Barcelona B or intermediate, this backbone of treatment has been local regional treatment, such as chemoembolization. More recently, some centers have been using radioembolization or Y90. But the optimal patients for this have tumor confined to the liver, tend to have well-compensated liver disease, and do not have vascular invasion local regional treatments are not curative. Some of these patients may be downstaged to transplant criteria, but many of them will progress over time and require systemic treatment. So the group of patients who are truly candidates for systemic treatment are not only the advanced, but also a subset of those that are intermediate. All of these patients would be considered unresectable because they are not candidates for surgical resection. Many of the guidelines have been updated to reflect some of these concepts. Dr. Finn, if we take a moment to consider the updated guidelines, what are the current first-line systemic treatment options recommended for advanced HCC? NCCN, ESMO, and the ASCO guidelines really focus on atezolizumab and bevacizumab as a frontline preferred option. The regimen tended to be well-tolerated, and we saw that there was significant improvements in quality of life. One of the concerns with this regimen is upper GI bleeding because of the potent anti-VEGF activity of bevacizumab. 
and in practice, patients should receive an upper endoscopy within six months of starting the regimen to look for varices that are at high risk of bleeding, and these should be managed before starting treatment. As far as kinase inhibitors in the frontline setting, we have serafinib and also lenvantinib. The multi-kinase VEGF receptor inhibitor was also approved in the frontline setting based on the REFLEX study that demonstrated it was non-inferior to serafinib. At progression, regardless of whether they receive a tezobev or lenvantinib or serafinib, it is important that we try to be incorporating the drugs we have approved into our treatment armamentarium. Now, even before the approval of Tezobev, we had a number of agents approved in the second-line setting, such as cabazantinib, regorafenib, both VEGF receptor TKIs that were shown to improve survival versus placebo, and the VEGF R2, VEGF receptor 2 monoclonal antibody, ramucirumab, which was also approved based on a positive phase 3 study that demonstrated that ramucirumab improved survival versus placebo in patients who had an elevated alpha-fetoprotein. In the United States, we also have accelerated approval of single-agent pembrolizumab in the second-line setting, as well as the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab in the second-line setting. Thank you, Dr. Finn. My last question is, if atezolizumab has now become standard of care for first-line therapy, what does this mean for patients with advanced HCC who may not be eligible for immunotherapy? It's important that we keep in mind that liver disease and liver dysfunction will affect our outcomes. Ultimately, the ability of patients to get sequential active agents will really depend on their performance status as well as how well they remain compensated. If a patient's liver disease worsens over time, regardless of how well we control the tumor, that will really limit their survival. And so it's very important for us to keep looking for liver cancer in earlier stages because some of them can be resected or undergo ablation with curative intent, or even receiving local treatments and then being listed for transplant if their liver disease does not allow for resection. And still, there's a lot of exciting activity coming along in the liver cancer space. In the past few months, we've seen the results of two phase three studies. One, the COSMIC 312 study that looked at the combination of cabazantinib and atezolizumab versus serafinib in the frontline setting. This study did meet its primary endpoint of improving progression-free survival from 4.2 months with serafinib to 6.8 months with cabazantinib and atezolizumab with a hazard ratio of 0.63. At the time of this readout, survival data was not mature. However, we did not see really any evidence of separation with 15 and a half months with serafinib and 15.4 months with cabazantinib and atezolizumab. Also, unlike what we saw with atezolizumab and Bevacizumab, which had a response rate of 30%, in this study, we saw an objective response rate of only 11% with the combination. Nevertheless, this regimen did meet its PFS endpoint, and really there were no new safety concerns with this combination. More recently, we also saw the results of the Himalaya study, which compared CTLA-4 and pdl one inhibition with tremilumab and dervalumab, and compared this to serafinib. There was also an arm in the study that compared single-agent dervalumab to serafinib. This study met its overall survival endpoint of improving OS with the combination of dervalumab and tremilumab. That was a hazard ratio of 0.78, not as strong as what we saw with atezolizumab and bevacizumab, but still a positive result. 
However, when we look at the secondary endpoint of progression-free survival, really no improvement with serafinib and the combination. The hazard ratio there was not statistically significant. There were no new safety concerns with this dual IO-IO combination. And the number of patients who required steroids for immune-related adverse events was about 20%. So in conclusion, we've seen a lot of progress in the management of patients with liver cancer. Those with advanced liver cancer are candidates for systemic treatment, as well as a subset of those patients with intermediate disease who have tumor burden in the liver beyond criteria for local regional treatment or who progress regardless of local regional treatment. While not approved yet, both the COSMIC 312 study and the Himalaya study provide perhaps new options for patients that might not be candidates for frontline atezolizumab and bevacizumab. Thank you for your attention. Hi there. Welcome to the second part of this activity on the management of patients with unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. Welcome back, Dr. Finn. In this presentation, we're going to review a few case scenarios to highlight how to optimize patient outcomes. But first, why is child P-score important when we consider therapy for a patient with HCC? Well, for a few reasons. For one, child P-score is prognostic for survival, regardless of a patient's tumor burden. We know that patients with liver cancer have some degree of liver dysfunction and their survival will be dictated by their degree of cirrhosis. For example, someone who's very decompensated, who has child PUC liver disease, will likely die of their underlying liver disease and not necessarily from their cancer. And those patients treating their cancer likely will not change their survival. On the other side of the spectrum, for patients who have child PUA liver disease, we know that controlling their cancer will improve their survival. And that's why they've been the focus of patients in clinical studies with liver cancer. Now, the child PUB patients tend to be somewhat heterogeneous. There's never been a phase three study that has shown that treating patients with liver cancer and child PUB liver disease can improve survival. However, in clinical practice, many of them are reasonable candidates for treatment as they're able to come to clinic and they have preserved performance status. But some of them are very ill and tend to be homebound or have significant impact on their performance status and quality of life because of their liver disease. And for them, it is unlikely that treating their cancer will improve outcomes. The other thing we need to pay attention to when it comes to patients' liver disease is that they might be at higher risk of side effects from our treatment. Therefore, all of these things need to come into account when we assess a patient for treatment. Dr. Finn, so how would you treat a patient with unresectable HCC and child puke class B liver function? Now, when we think about patients with advanced liver cancer in the frontline setting, the drugs that are most active tend to be immuno-oncology agents and specifically doublets. Tezolizumab and bevacizumab has been shown to improve survival in patients with child puke A advanced liver cancer, and there is not a lot of safety data in this population with child puke B. But some of these patients might have a very large tumor burden in the liver. For a patient like that, the most important thing to improve their outcome may be inducing a response. And we know that atezolizumab and bevacizumab induces responses in about 30% of patients, at least from the Embrave 150 study. For a patient like that, then I do think it's not unreasonable to offer them the most active regimen we have. 
We know that serafinib has been around for over a decade, and there is data that tells us it's fairly safe in patients with child PUB. What we don't know is, are we improving survival in those patients? However, it may be a reasonable option for patients as well. Finally, lenvantinib is also approved in the frontline setting. And while it has maybe a little more side effects than serafinib, when we look at it head-to-head in regards to inducing hypertension or proteinuria, it may be a reasonable option as well. Moving on to a new case scenario, how would you manage a patient with unresectable HCC and varices who is slightly decompensated and at a high risk of bleeding? We know that patients with liver disease are at increased risk of upper GI bleeding from portal hypertension, and anti-VEGF therapies such as bevacizumab have been associated with increase in bleeding events. For that reason, upper endoscopy was required, and by doing so, really, there was a fairly low risk of high-grade bleeding events, really single-digit upper GI bleeding. This was increased, though, as compared to serafinib. So in practice, it is important that we try to mimic what was done in clinical studies and get patients an endoscopy before starting a tezolizumab and bevacizumab. Should this patient have an endoscopy and have varices that are high risk of bleeding, these really should be managed per the endoscopist's recommendation, and typically that means banding. In a patient like this, I would be somewhat hesitant to start tezolizumab and bevacizumab shortly after they had their upper endoscopy, especially as in this case, a patient who also has some decompensated liver disease. For these patients, single-agent TKIs such as serafinib or lenvantinib would probably be appropriate. And perhaps at progression, should their varices be controlled, consider atezolizumab and bevacizumab then. Dr. Finn, how would you manage a patient who has progressed on first-line immunotherapy? All the data we have in the second line and beyond have been generated only in patients who had prior serafinib. So for patients who get atezolizumab and bevacizumab in the frontline setting, how do we approach them once they have disease progression? It's important to think that those patients really are two different groups. There's a group of patients who get atezolizumab and bevacizumab and have a significant response and long-term disease control and eventually progress. And there's also those patients who get atezobev and progress fairly quickly. That latter group is probably a group that has a very difficult prognosis. Needless to say, many of us, and as guidelines have indicated, would cycle drugs that they have not seen before. In that regard, frontline TKIs could be considered the next line of therapy, either serafinib or lenvantinib. And at the time of progression on those, then considering the other agents we have, such as cabazantinib or regorafenib, or if their AFP is elevated, ramucirumab. We recently presented data at the ASCO GI meeting demonstrating in a prospective study that the activity of ramucirumab in regimens other than serafinib actually looks very similar to the data from phase three studies, such as the REACH2 study, where patients were required to receive only serafinib. In summary, when considering our approach to patients with unresectable liver cancer, it is important to keep in mind a patient's underlying liver disease as well as their tumor characteristics. We have to keep in mind the areas where we have data gaps, specifically in those patients who have less compensated liver disease, and managing and balancing a patient's goals for treatment and tolerability. 
keep in mind that now that we have so many agents that have shown the ability to improve survival in liver cancer, we come up with a plan on how to sequence these optimally. What we don't know is what would be the activity of further IO combinations after prior atezobev. Will there be a role for PD-1 or pd one combinations with one of the kinase inhibitors? Or will there be activity with regimens such as ipinevo, which is approved after prior serafinib? Will that maintain activity after prior atezobev? Or for that matter, drivalumab and tremilumumab? Will that be active after atezobev in the frontline setting? These are important questions, and typically retrospective studies do suggest that PD-1 and CTLA-4 regimens may have activity after prior IO. These are studies that were done in kidney cancer, as well as some studies that have recently been published in liver cancer, but clearly an area where we need more data. I suspect we will continue to see incremental improvements in survival for our patients. Thank you very much for your attention. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.